So I'm a dad now. Uh, our first Christmas with the baby was, was this last Christmas. And it was interesting for me because there's this question of, of gift giving. And those of you who have children uh, know how important this is to get just the right things for your children so that they, can, they still love you on Christmas morning. Well, in our house, our daughter uh, doesn't have any language or thoughts or concepts. So I was really surprised to find out that it was really important to get her all of the right clothes, all of the right toys. I, I was kind of shocked, frankly. But it's true. It's very true. Even, even at uh, the tender age of, of four months, it is incredibly important that that baby is excited. I thought, and this is apparently wrong, I thought you could just you know, sort of wad up a piece of newspaper and throw it at the baby, and then she would be happy. Because that's kind of what I do when I'm taking care of her. But nope, that's, that's not right. You actually have to provide real gifts. Then, yes, uh, on Friday, I was at a Knott's Berry Farm of the Youth Group, and I, I was made aware of this television show. And I wanted to know if any of you, it, it's called 19 and Counting? Emily knows. You've seen it. Okay, apparently the, the, this show, it's a reality TV show, and it's this couple, where are they from? She doesn't know. The Midwest or the South is my guess. Definitely not Orange County. This couple, they have 19 children. And counting. Yeah. They, uh, they, they, say, they say that, um, according to the scriptures, uh, every child is a blessing. And why would you refuse God's blessings? I think that's fair. That makes sense to me. And if you're a student of history, I wish my dad were here so he could correct me. Apparently, the uh, Puritans... Uh, in Massachusetts Bay Colony, they were very intent on having many, many children. And if I recall correctly from junior high history class, the first uh, mayor or governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony had 24 kids. Yeah, yeah, 24. Three wives. Not, in, not at the same time, in succession. That's a, yeah, I think that's a true fact. If, if you have the Google machine, you're going to need to check me on that one. But I think that's a true fact. So I got to thinking after this, after learning about this show, the, the, this couple, they have 19 kids. And I was thinking, man, Christmas must be insane. I mean, I hope this guy's an investment banker, because there is no other way you could possibly do well by your kids, right? How do, how do their kids even love them? But I, I'm, I'm an only child, okay? I had very high expectations on Christmas morning. I could, Wow! But then I was thinking, all right, if you're a truly savvy parent, I had an idea. What, what if, so, you, so you've got, you know, the 15-year-old, and you give the 15-year-old an ice cream maker, right? And then you give the 3-year-old and the 5-year-old a gift certificate that says, your older brother is going to make you ice cream. You see where I'm going with this, right? You could, you could maximize uh, the way that you're able to, to give gifts by, by in, instilling in your older children the understanding that this gift that you're given is meant uh, to, to be given to others, right? At least that's what I thought I would probably do. Um, Aaron, is Aaron out of here? Is she, is she in the nursery? Oh, she can hear? 19 and counting, Air Bear. Let's get to work. Oh, my goodness. All right. Um, gift giving. When you've got 19 children, you don't, on Christmas morning, give gifts to all of them. No one can afford that. Instead, you find ways to give gifts that 
that once the gift has been received, it moves on and it goes out. You, you give the gift of the ice cream maker that the ice cream might be made. You, you give the gift of the box of Legos that the Legos might be turned into. Now they have Star Wars, Star Wars Legos. Who'd have thought? Star Wars Legos, the, the, the model X-Wing can be given to the younger sibling. We give gifts so that the gifts can be passed on. If you have a note sheet, you do. Uh, I'd like to draw your attention to the text for, the, for this morning. It's uh, from Luke 12. It says Luke 12, 36 at the top, but apparently it's actually Luke 35. I wasn't sure where I was going to start. I made... It was insane. All right. Uh, this is the NRSV version. If you have your pew Bibles, it's going to be the New King James. Very similar. I just like the way that the NRSV has uh, translated some of the, the idioms in this text, uh, especially this first verse. So let's read together. This is Jesus. He's, uh, he's giving these sermons, and, and the way Luke uh, runs his narrative, the way he narrates uh, the audiences, is very strange. Uh, it's hard to tell who Jesus is talking to. So at the beginning of chapter 12, there's thousands of people. And then around verse 12 or 13, Jesus starts talking to his disciples. So the image that we have in our head is there's this inner circle, the disciples, and then uh, beyond them are the thousands that have gathered to hear Jesus' teaching. And so in the middle of this discourse, uh, Jesus says this, Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet, so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those, who, are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so blessed are those slaves. But know this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not let, have let his house, house be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? If you want to, you can check later. Uh, In Matthew 24, we have the parallel to this text. Um, Matthew tells the story. And almost, at, at almost every step, the, the story is told exactly the same way. The only change, the only difference, is Luke inserts this question. He records the question that Peter asked. And then at the end of the uh, section, he adds a, a, a saying from Jesus. And I, I have to be honest with you. This question that Peter asks has been torturing me for two weeks. Now, I know a normal person probably can't relate to this, but for me, in, in the, in, in, as a nerd, as a, as a dyed-in-the-wool total nerd, Bible nerd, I've been sitting here trying to figure out what Peter's question means. Why does he ask it? What's he saying? Is this for us, or is it for everyone? Well, I'm looking at this, at this parable that Jesus tells, and... It seems pretty clear to me, and maybe you can follow me here, it seems pretty clear to me that the Master is the Lord, and when He returns, that's when He comes back, the second coming of our, of our Lord. And so He's telling 
people to be ready. We don't know when he's coming back. If we did, we could just sort of do whatever we wanted, and then right before he gets here, sort of clean, put everything in order, right? That's what I would do. But we don't, and so we're supposed to be dressed. Be ready. Be ready for action. Have your lamps lit. Have everything ready. So, it was, so if he comes at midnight, at dawn, whenever he shows up, when he walks in the door, he's like, ah, the house is exactly the way I expected it. Wonderful. Why does Peter ask this question? It should be clear. I thought maybe Peter's bored. I get this a lot. Peter's just sitting there. He's like, really? Again? With this teaching, Jesus? Again? Obviously, you're not telling us, the disciples. We know. Surely this is for everyone else who doesn't quite get it. Maybe... Peter's trying to get off the hook a little bit. Maybe he's worried a little bit. Maybe he's worried. Well, I mean, we're the disciples. We're, we're the ones who can be depended on to be ready. The, the Lord's not suggesting that we would fall asleep at the wheel, is he? And, and Peter is, is a little bit justified in saying this. If you uh, look back to Luke's account of the transfiguration, there's this part where all the disciples are like, they're drowsing off to sleep, but they, they hang in there just long enough for the transfiguration to take place. So maybe Peter's thinking, yeah, sure, we don't need to worry. We're, we're the disciples. We're the guys. If that's the case, uh, I think Luke, Luke, the way Luke tells the, the story um, indicates that Peter is, is, is wrong. He shouldn't be getting off the hook. Uh, maybe there's an allusion to the fact that Judas is one of the disciples and he's going to betray the Lord. Um, moreover, at Gethsemane, at Gethsemane uh, all, of, all the disciples fall asleep in Jesus' hour of need. And then what really tortured my mind and continues to torture my mind is the Lord's answer to Peter's question. So let's pick it up in verse 42. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and prudent manager whom his master will put in charge of his slaves to give them allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly, I tell you, he'll put that one in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says to himself, Ah, my master's delayed in coming. And if he begins to beat the other slaves, men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That slave who knew what his master wanted, but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. It's 
a little bit dangerous to tell this, uh, to, to preach on this text in this church. Um, and, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, Jesus' answer to Peter's question doesn't answer the question at all. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Jesus is, I don't, maybe he wasn't listening, or maybe he, I, I don't know what it was, but Jesus does not answer Peter's question. Instead, he, he sort of almost retells a, a version of the, the first parable. And in this, in this parable, he has a, a manager um, who is in charge of his house while he's gone. In the ancient Near East, the, a, a household would have been composed of a hierarchy of, of slaves. These were not slaves in the sense that maybe we're more familiar with um, in, through American history, uh, shadow slavery. It's not that. Uh, these slaves would be able to, to have children who were born free. Many of them actually would have entered into to, to slavery voluntarily because they had no way to provide for themselves. Um, nevertheless, you were considered property, and a slave owner could um, probably murder a slave uh, and get away with it. So it was not a good thing, but it was also not um, maybe what we're most familiar with. Now, being a slave had advantages. Not only would you be, be provided for, but if you were in service to a, a very... Uh, noble house, an elite house. When you exited the house, you carried with you the status of your master. So when you went to the marketplace as the slave of a noble master, uh, the, the marketplace, they, they would treat you as if your noble master were there. Even though you were not a citizen, even though you uh, normally were a slave, you would be greeted and you would be treated with all of the respect that your master deserved. Moreover, if you were a master's manager in the house, uh, the slaves underneath you who ran, who ran things, would, would have to treat you, would have to think of you in the same way that they thought of their master. So being a, a slave, being a manager in a, in a noble house was probably the best job that you could get if you were not an elite in the ancient Near East. If you were not a Roman citizen, if you were not a, a, landed, a member of the landed class or a member of the, uh, what we would think of as the middle class, if you were a lower class person, the best that you could possibly hope for in life would be to enter into this sort of service. And so the, the, the parable that Jesus is telling, is very, it, it, they, it, it's very easy to understand for, for these people. What he's saying is he's saying, he's saying a person of low status can be lifted up to the highest of status. But there's a price. There's a price for this. The price is responsibility. That, for me, that's a huge price. I, I'm... Responsibility terrifies me. I don't know why, well, I know why I got married. I mean, who could resist her? But, wow, fatherhood? I mean, I'm not Mike Gibson, all right? I'm not, I'm not Big Papa back there. This responsibility terrifies me. And what's worse, what's worse about this particular responsibility is that it comes with constant temptation. Imagine you're a person who's born into poverty. And suddenly, through hard work, and dedication, you find yourself at the top of the heap. You now have access to the best bottles of wine, to the finest game. You, you have a power and authority. You can tell, you go there, you go there. Oh, I don't like you. You have it all right at your fingertips. Oh, I can just imagine. You're constantly under the temptation to abuse your power. The master gives you this responsibility because he has a goal. He wants you to tend the kingdom. 
tend his house, expand it, continue the operations, make sure that everything is running smoothly, precisely the way he wants it. And all the while you're thinking, oh, I could just relax, parties every night. He'll never know. And so there's three possibilities. Possibility one is you maintain. You do the right thing. You take care of the house. You send the servants on their tasks. You expand the business. The master comes back. The place is clean. It's perfect. And what happens? The master rewards you greatly. He says, you've done well in this. Now you will do well in all of what I have. Not just this house, many lands. I will put you in charge. We might in our ear hear the story of Joseph. Uh, from the Old Testament, where one man is given the, the reins to an entire kingdom because of his faithfulness. The other possibility, the Judas possibility, the, dare I say, the Peter possibility, we're given great responsibility, temptation is too great, the need for power, the need for all the lusts that money can buy, overcomes the one who's been given much. And he lives in revelry. And of course, who, who could have seen it coming? The Lord returns at just that time, catches him in the act, and beats him severely. There's a third possibility. The master is headed out the door. He looks back. He's like, ah, you, take care of stuff while I'm gone. I, I, I tend the horses. I don't know anything about business. Of course he's going to do a terrible job. He doesn't have the knowledge. Well, when everything falls apart, the master comes back, he looks at him, I should never have left you in charge. A light beating. It kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable, all these beatings going on. And I told you this is a dangerous text. Here's why. You'll look in uh, chapter 46, or uh, verse 46, at the end... Um, the, the unfaithful manager is uh, it's told that he will be cut in pieces and uh, placed with the unfaithful. Um, I like that translation, unfaithful. Um, cut him in pieces, it's literally cut in two. It's the word that we get uh, dichotomy from. So it's literally kind of like you will be dichotomized. Uh, you might take in your mind a, um, a samurai sword literally going straight across. Um, it's an extremely violent image. Uh, it's used of cattle in the Old Testament um, when they're being slaughtered uh, for uh, food or for sacrifice. Uh, unfaithful is, uh, it could be translated a number of ways. Um, I like unfaithful because it, um, well, it could be translated one who does not believe or those who do not believe. It could also be translated those who do not uh, keep faith, those who do not hang in. For those of us who are used to reading the scriptures and thinking um, always in terms of, of heaven and hell, it can sound a lot like um, someone who's been given a lot of responsibility in the church. When they fail, they can be cast into hell. It, it could sound like that. And I have to be honest with you, there's nothing in this text, there's nothing in the context of this text, there's nothing in the context of Luke that militates against that reading. It is perfectly possible, and a number of people do read this to say that um, someone who has been entrusted with great authority and who fails will be cast into hell. 
I think we have good reason to reject that reading. Uh, and the reason is not in this text per se, although it is strange that it goes from dichotomize to uh, severe beating in the next uh, verse. So it, it's difficult to say what exactly is being, maybe Jesus is being hyperbolic. But I wanted to bring this up because I wanted us to, to, to think about the way that we interpret. And I wanted us to remember that when we're faced with um, difficult sayings, uh, especially in the New Testament, it is imperative that we always stretch back to Israel. We always stretch our minds back to God's first son, Israel, and the way God and Israel interacted. What I want to suggest to you is that, in a way, this story can be read as a retelling of Israel's story. Israel was given everything. Prosperity. Authority. Power. Israel had it all. And Israel fell apart. Israel had every advantage, was the steward of stewards, and, and cast everything aside. And, and the master looked at that and said, no, you must be punished. And the master did horrible things to Israel. Israel suffered very deeply for her sins. But God's faithful love never left his child. Today, the fact that Israel is a, is a nation state is mind-boggling. Every time Israel has faced disintegration and destruction, God has brought her back and kept her whole. Because God's love does not fail the way our love fails. Imprudent managers will be severely beaten, but they will be raised back up in love. However, our responsibility is great. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? Jesus doesn't answer the question. But what he does do is tell a story that should have every single person listening saying, What have I been given? Have I been given much? Which of these servants am I? When I was in college, my, oh, here we go again, sophomore year. Uh, I had, man, I had it all. Good time. Sophomore year, one of the best years ever. I mean, I was really popular. I mean, obviously, good looking. Um, yeah, just it, things couldn't have been going better. Um, my friend Tim, at the same time, was near the bottom. Um, he was at a, at a pretty dark place. Tim um, had a terrible relationship with his father, who, ironically, was a Presbyterian minister. Um, he he struggled deeply with his sexuality. He d struggled deeply with uh, internet pornography. He struggled deeply with friendship. Um, 
And I recall coming out of, of a building one day. It was, it was at night. I had just done a Bible study at a small group that I, that I led. And uh, he was standing there, and, and we began talking. And, you know, he asked me how I'm doing. I'm like, oh, man, things are great. You know, I just, I love being in school. I love my parents are really far away. I don't have to deal with them. It's awesome. Uh, at the same time, like, I go to a school where they do my laundry for me. I mean, this is, this is, is pretty much as good as it gets. Like, it does, this is wonderful. And he looks at me, and he says, to whom much is given, much is required. And to this day, it haunts me. I mean, Tim had it hard. Really hard. And I was just sailing, you know? Because I never stopped and thought, why has all this been given to you? Why did you get so much? I never thought that the whole purpose of these gifts being given to you, you've been given the ice cream maker, make some ice cream. I wanted it all for me. I wanted to have a great time. Responsibility, no thanks. I'm actually just really enjoying reading great books, talking with friends, hanging out. It's great. Tom, you've been given so much. A lot is expected from you. I'm 31 years old. A lot is expected. And I know that God will never give up on me. But he expects good work. I've not been given a lot of money. Uh, so that's probably not where God's expecting much work from me. But I have a lot of that book learning. How am I using it? Am I a resource for this kingdom, this church? Am I expanding this people? Am I building God's people up? Am I taking what I have and am I being faithful with it? Or am I laying back? Eating, drinking, hanging out. Is this question for us or is it for everyone? Yes! Yes is the answer to that. It's for everyone. Ask yourself, what have you been given? Maybe you've been given the gift of singleness. It is a gift. You know what single people have? Time. Time is amazing. I never realized how much of it you lose. I thought, I thought I was busy before I was, when I got married. Oh, my goodness. It's crazy. I mean, everybody knows I can't function with less than 10 hours of sleep. So, I mean, I'm in trouble. You've been given this. You have this time. Use it. Maybe you're successful. I'd like to be successful. Maybe you have great... Great, uh, great houses, great lands. Maybe you have, have, have money. Are you, what are you doing with it? Much is expected of you. There are those who don't have it. What have you been given? 
Maybe you're great with friends. Maybe you're really good at making friends. Maybe you're really social. How is that building up this body right now? How is that finding the person who's the outsider and dragging them in, kicking and screaming? The person who doesn't like people, it's like, no, you're at coast. You will not be alone. Brothers and sisters, we have been given much. We find out later in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit bestows gifts on every single one of us. Maybe your gift is, I don't know, Kevin, video editing. And maybe the youth group needs a lot of video editing done. I'd, you know, just, just spitballing. Maybe you're an artist, Brent. What have you been given? You've been given so much. I, 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 when I was thinking about this section, I, I even thought we have such a tradition here of, of people in the military. Consider what a gift you have. You have, you have been entrusted literally with the ability um, to take life. You have been entrusted with the ability to kill, the highest uh, responsibility. And now much is being asked of you to exercise your power with responsibility and grace to build up and not to destroy. Much is required of us. We have the gifts to build each other up, to strengthen this church, to expand our reach for the kingdom of God, and to show the world what it looks like when we don't just take back, sit back, easy time, fun, happy. And instead we say, no, I got this ice cream maker to make ice cream. I've been given much. Much is required. So that's what I want to leave you, with you today. That question. I think that at every point in, every, in, in everyone's life, this is my, partic- my personal reading of, of this parable, um, that everyone goes through each of these, these stages of, of prudent and imprudent managering, if that's a word. I think it's interesting that Peter is the one who asks the question. Peter, who, uh, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, one moment, and then get behind me, Satan, in the next the one who experiences the transfiguration and immediately tries to make it last forever. The one who denies the Lord three times. And yet, in Acts, also written by Luke, in Acts, he becomes this incredible force for the gospel, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, changing the world. Interesting that he's the one who asks, is it me or everyone? You, Peter. You who have been an unfaithful manager. You whom I have cut up and have built back up and have been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom. You, Peter, who often didn't know what was expected of you, and so I had to rebuke you because you didn't know what you were talking about. You, Peter, who have taken the gospel to the Gentiles. You, Peter, who have freed them from the law. You, Peter, who have done well and, as Christian uh, tradition has it, uh, was crucified upside down for his faith. You, Peter, were given much. And much was asked of you. You've been given much. Much is required. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of Israel.
You are the God who, who asks much and, and who punishes and who trains, but at the same time who builds up, who revives, who lavishes mercy, whose love never gives up. We thank you, Father, that you have given us much. That you have lavished your blessings on us. That you have poured out good things on your people. God, we ask that you will kindle within us a desire, a need, a passion for taking the gifts that you give us and spreading them around, building up your church, encouraging your people, increasing holiness. Sending out your gospel to those who do not know it, who do not know that you love them and have loved them in your Son. God, send your Spirit into our hearts. Fill us with a confidence to know that, that you have given us what we need to be faithful to your calling. And that you will always be there to push us forward. That we, like Peter, will fail, but we, like Peter, will rise. You are good. And the gift of eternal life that you bestow upon us in your Son is good. And in his name we pray, now and forever. Amen.